Uh, it's good. It's good to be able to uh, to speak about this text. I'm excited for for today for what we get to get into here. So turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're continuing on, and in the section, many of your Bibles are going to title it "The Greatest Commandment." You'll notice that topic or the the title of my sermon is not titled the same, and you'll see why as we go along. Um, for the last couple of weeks, we've been explaining and talking about different reasons or motivations for why people reject Jesus. Um, we saw examples of just indifference in the wedding guests that were invited to the feast. We saw the Pharisees. We saw pride and a control for power in the the, the Pharisees in training or the wannabe Pharisees. Um, you know, we saw the Sadducees. And their misunderstanding of God and His Word and the power of God. And each group rejected Jesus for what they thought were legitimate reasons. In their mind, they thought, well, this doesn't make sense or this isn't right. And yet, in reality, they are so far from God that they don't see the error of their ways. And so it requires, it takes the Spirit moving in them for them to see that. And it's still the same for us today. Right? G- Jesus was there speaking these things to them and they still they they recognized it was about them and yet they had no change of heart. And so my prayer is that we don't fall into the same trap. So re- recapping the setting of where we're at if you're just joining us in Matthew 22 or haven't been here for in a, for a couple weeks, uh, here's kind of the setting before we get into the text. Um Jesus has just been uh, tried to be trapped by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, the chief priests. They're asking him these questions that they think are going to trip him up and discredit him in front of everybody, right? Because they think that's the easier way. Really, they just like him gone, but they can't just start you know, taking people's heads off willy-nilly. They've got to have a good reason. And so they try to discredit him first, and so they're trying to trap him. Uh, the Pharisees couldn't make any headway in what they did, so they started bringing in these other groups. And the Sadducees got involved, and they um, they asked Jesus a silly question that we looked at last week, and the kids talked about it. They didn't even believe in the resurrection, and yet they they bring this question before Jesus about a woman who marries like seven brothers well, whose wife is she in heaven? And we talked about that last week a little bit. Um, I, I think now the Pharisees are, are beginning to understand that, that this situation, that Jesus himself is getting out of control. Like it's, it's getting out of hand. They can't control him anymore. And so they're grasping at anything they can to trip him up to discredit him. And so we see here in the text that they send a lawyer. So let's look at chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Read along with me. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So they sent an expert in the law now to Jesus to trip him up. Um, 
the unfortunate part is, though this man had a head full of knowledge, his heart was empty. Right? And so I think that uh, this points out something that I, that I wanted to emphasize this morning, and it's this. Knowledge of facts does not equal knowledge of God. Right? And we know this because we see this situation, but you guys know people in your own lives, in your own minds, people that are very, very smart, and yet for one reason or another, they've rejected Jesus. And so their heart is very empty. Their head may be full, but their heart is very empty. And so it's, it's right for us to value education, right? It is a right thing for us to value education. It's, it's good, parents, for you to encourage your children to study hard, to go after good grades, to, to work hard as unto the Lord in these things. Kids, it is absolutely honoring God for you to work hard in your studies, right? That's a good thing to put the time and the energy in to learn the things that you need to in the classroom. Those are good things. But my caution would be this. Scholastic education alone does not result in a right relationship with God. It doesn't. You can fill your head up with all kinds of facts and knowledge and understand the intricacies of mathematics and politics and science and history, and those are not bad things in and of themselves. But if they are at the expense of something greater, that's where the problem comes in. So uh, let me just talk to my fellow parents here. And those of you who don't have parents in the home, many of you, ha- or I'm sorry, those of you who don't have kids in the home... <laughs> Hopefully, if you're a kid, you have a parent in your home. Um, if you don't have kids in your home currently, you did at one point, and you can relate. So, you know, as parents, the truth of the matter is that we may, none of my kids may ever learn to disassemble and reassemble an engine, right? I, I'm not gifted in that. I don't expect them to be, but, you know, they may never do that. Um, they may never, none of our kids may ever be able to perform life-saving surgery, on somebody. Uh, my kids may not be able to memorize great works of poetry. They may never sit at the desk of a CEO in a large corporation. You know, they may never, my kids may never cure a disease in life. Now, we hope and we pray as parents that our kids learn more and supersede us in our abilities and in our knowledge and in our success. Um, but truth told, life doesn't go as planned, does it? And we're not guaranteed that our kids are ever going to do anything monumental that shapes all of the world. And yet there is something that we're guaranteed of. We're guaranteed that every one of our kids is going to stand before God one day. Every one of our kids is going to stand before God one day. So what are we emphasizing most to our kids? Is it, you know, a robust scholastic education? Do well in your studies and nothing else? Or is it a growing relationship with Jesus? Now, I, I think that the first isn't wrong unless it's at the expense of the second. You hear what I'm saying? So pursuing quality education and and knowledge and understanding is not wrong unless it's at the expense of a growing relationship with God. And so 
just to be clear, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, right? It's not like you can only have one or the other. I think that they can absolutely work together. And I was just thinking, and some of you in the education field, um, even the medical fields may be able to add some names to this, but just thinking about great minds that our world has known that of people that are professing Christians, right? Um, authors like John Milton, uh, G.K. Chesterton, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis. These guys are renowned in all of the writing world as excellent writers. And these guys were professing believers. Musicians like uh, Bach, um, Handel, wrote Handel's Messiah. I mean, these are incredible works of art, of music. Um, these guys were believers. Scientists like um, Isaac Newton, Kepler, Robert Boyle, Louis Pasteur, Michael Faraday, Galileo, Sir Francis Bacon, Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, all these guys believed in God and shaped so much of our world, our understanding of the world, I should say. And so I bring that up to just emphasize the point that I, I'm not saying you can only choose one or the other, but choosing an education at the expense of a relationship with God is not the way that we should be emphasizing things to our kids. These people that I mentioned, they changed the world through hard work in their studies while at the same time pursuing a relationship with God. And that's the model that I'm suggesting today. So, so parents, we should challenge our kids in academics. It's good to give them tests, to measure where they're at, to, to, you know, spur them on to succeed in that. Uh, kids, you're right to go after good grades, to learn all that you can when you can. But let's just not forget what we see here in the text in Matthew 22. We see a guy who was very well versed in the law, very full head of knowledge, and yet his heart was very empty. And I know that that's not what you want for your child. That's not what we want for our families. We want people who have a robust knowledge along with a growing relationship with Christ. And I think that's possible. So this man that we're talking about, he knew the law. So they sent him. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 was known to the Jews as the Shema. And that's what this comes from. Um, I really think you... You probably weren't a very good Jew if you didn't know that. And really, really good Jews had that memorized. Um, the Shema. And this, and it said this, what Jesus quotes. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The lawyer probably knew this, right? As soon as Jesus said it, his mind goes back to his training as a child. And he probably understood these truths. The problem was he missed their application. He knew it here, but he didn't know it here. He didn't know it here as, as he applied it in real life. And so my hope today is that we don't miss it and do the same thing. That we don't miss the truths that we know, but they don't apply to our lives. And so, th- and that's really why the sermon title is The Impossible Command. Right? The the Impossible Command. Let me explain why. Uh, so Jesus quoted from the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, all your mind. Um, but look at just the first part of this. 
Love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart. Um, at the risk of embarrassing us all, I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands. But think about this. How many of you can say with certainty that you have loved the Lord your God with all of your heart? Um, I can say with certainty that there's probably not been a day in my life when that's been true of me. And if we're honest, we're probably all in that place. You know, even in those moments when I felt the closest to the Lord, when I felt very encouraged and devoted to God, the truth is that my heart is still full of pride and still full of selfishness. If then we add to, to that command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, if you add then love Him with all of your soul and with all of your mind, man, we're really in trouble now, aren't we? There's not one of us that has been able to do that. My heart, my soul, my mind, these, these things overlap to cover everything about me, everything that I am. And I'm sorry to say that I have not loved God in that way in my life. If this wasn't enough of kind of a condemnation or a realization of what's true, Jesus then adds to that command, what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. We're doomed, right? I mean, I am doomed by these commands. Um, if you were to ask my wife, and I would ask, I would appreciate if you didn't actually do this, but if you were to ask her, who you know I have vowed to love more deeply than any other human being, um, if, if you were to ask her if I have loved her as myself, I, I'm on, I can only guess the answer, and I probably wouldn't like it. Um, the ones that I love the most in all of the earth don't receive, even they don't receive the same kind of love that I have for myself. And your loved ones don't either. The resident selfishness that is bound up within us makes that completely impossible. It really does. And so we start to ask these questions, or at least I did as I was reading through this and thinking about this for today. You know, doesn't, doesn't God know this about me? Doesn't he know that there's selfishness in my heart? Doesn't he know that we... We, we don't really love him with all of our strength, with all of our mind, all of our heart. Doesn't, why would he give us a command that he knows we can't keep? Right? That's, that's a question that we have to wrestle with here. How could God give us a command that he knows we can't keep? And if that, I'm just kind of piling this on, and I apologize, but if that wasn't bad enough, it's not the only place in Scripture that we see God giving impossible commands. You'll be reminded of one uh, that you hear oftentimes at weddings. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Continuing on in verse 25 and 28. Husbands, Love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's impossible. How can we do that in our relationships? You know, I could ask any of you who are married today, and you would verify that, I would think. How can I love my wife 
when she's not treating me the way that I think that she should? How can she love me and submit to me when I'm not treating her the way that I'm commanded to to treat her? And it's this impossible cycle, it seems, of fruitlessness, of folly and frustration. I don't love my wife as myself all the time. Probably even half the time. Um, Yet, it's very clear here that that's how I am to love her. Are there any wives in the room whose husbands love them this way? Probably not. Are there any husbands in this room who love their wives or who are respected and submitted to by their wives in this way? Probably not. So back to that question, that's a logical question to ask, why would God expect something of you and me that he knows we cannot do? Why are we being asked to love God with all that we are and also to love others as much as we love ourselves if he knows that we cannot do it. God, this is impossible, we say. It's not possible. Here's the point where I think some people lose it. And they say things like, well, how can God really be good if he gives us commands that he knows we can't fulfill? That's foolish. That's ridiculous. God can't be good if that is the case. How can God even hold us responsible for obeying these commands if he knows that it's impossible for us to do this? These are logical processes to work through. How can God be right and righteous if he knowingly, in a sense, sets us up to fail? Sometimes these questions then turn into thoughts and statements in our own mind of saying, it's actually wrong of God to expect this of me. His law is wrong to demand this of me. Right? So we go from these, these tough questions and thoughts about God now to suppositions about his character that lead us down really dark paths. If you feel confused and helpless and hopeless in this, please know that you're not alone and you aren't the first to feel this way about it. I think we can look at Paul. Uh, If you have any remembrance of Romans chapter 7, you're going to remember quickly, Paul felt this way a lot. And so I just want to point out, in fact, why don't we turn there. Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Romans 7, 12 and 13. Romans 7, verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This answers one of our questions here, right? The law is not wrong to demand this of us. The law, as verse 12 says, the law is holy and the commandment is right and righteous and holy and good. Okay. So this answers one of our questions. The commands of God are not wrong. 
to require this of me. The law, in fact, as we read here, does a work for us. There's a purpose in it. It's to reveal the sin that already resides in us. That's the purpose of the law. It doesn't create sin. It just reveals it and shows it for what it really is. And brothers and sisters, I'm reminded of this on a day in and day out basis. Sin is destructive. Sin causes and leads to conflict and selfishness. Sin ultimately leads to death. And that's what the enemy wants for our marriages, for our homes, for our church. Death, destruction, being discredited. Paul adds, if, you, if you're in Romans 7, verse 22 through 24, he says this, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Boy, we can identify with this, can't we? I mean, the thing that we see we should do, We don't do the thing that we know we shouldn't do. That's what we do. And Paul is there and he says what we feel. Wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this? How can I ever get out of this place? Have you ever been stuck there? Have you ever felt that way? In this this cycle of of selfishness and fear and anxiety and uh, resentment and um, just frustration? being beat down, right here, this is where we're talking about it. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from my wretchedness? Who will deliver me from the stranglehold of sin in my life? Who will deliver me from being condemned by the impossibility of keeping these commands? But look at the next verse, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who. That's the answer to our question. It's God himself who saves us from the condemnation of these two greatest commands. We cannot obey them as we should because of the sin that the law reveals in us. And yet, look at, flip over to chapter 8 in Romans, verses 3 and 4. This is the part, this is the, the part of the movie where the hero comes in and saves the day. This is it. Chapter 8, verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's the beautiful, joyous, monumental, incredible thing about what we just read. Jesus loved God the Father with all of his heart, his soul, and his mind on our behalf. He did it because we could not. He did it so that we would not be condemned under this law that we cannot obey on our own. He loved us, his neighbors, even while we were his sinful enemies. 
He truly loved us like He loved Himself. He became sin for us that we might no longer just be neighbors, but actually a part of Him, a part of Himself, a part of the body of Christ. This is the reconciliation that we have through Jesus. So the purpose of God giving us impossible commands is to reveal the truth about sin in our lives. About sin in our lives. Sin is almost always deeper than we think and more costly than we can imagine. That rings true in my life. Except for a real relationship with Jesus, um, we are wretched, as Paul says. We are without hope. We are stuck in that cycle of saying, who's going to rescue me from this? Because I can't do it on my own. I've tried for years. I've tried any number of ways. Who's going to rescue me? If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you still need to be rescued. And our prayer, my prayer is that you would recognize that. The Spirit would move you to repentance and belief today. These two great commandments that we've talked about that Jesus says in answer to this question reveal just how much it's true that without Him we're without hope. They make this painfully obvious. But by being united with Jesus... By being united with the Savior, we are forgiven of our constant failure to keep these commands. And instead, we see His ability to keep them credited to us. That's the, that's the incredible exchange that happens at salvation. We exchange our filthy, wretched rags for the righteousness of Christ. Praise God. And and this is true. This is available for every person that believes, that turns to Christ in repentance and faith. It's not for just normal, you know, sin, people that are in this bracket of sinfulness. You know, it's not like the tax brackets. Sin isn't like that. You do it once and you're right along with the rest of us. You're in trouble. And so this also rings true for everyone that comes to Jesus So how do we apply this, right? That was what I didn't want us to do. I didn't want us to hear this and then have this head full of knowledge but still have empty hearts in this. How do we apply what we're talking about? Um, There's a writer for Desiring God who says this. I found very helpful. He says, The most loving thing that we can do for others is to love God more than we love them. Think about that because it seems really strange at the outset, but think about that. If we love God most, we'll love others best. There's a reason why Jesus said the second greatest commandment is like the first. If we love God with all of our heart, we'll love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It functions like faith and works. If we truly have the first, the second naturally follows. But if God is not the love of our life, there's no way that we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves, for we will, will, will love ourselves supremely. We can try and love people how we should, but if we don't love God more than them, we'll always mess it up. We'll always fall short. We have to, as he said, love God more than we love others. That's why it comes first. And yet the second is like that one. 
Guys, when something else becomes the thing that we love the most instead of God, love becomes um, distorted and diseased. It doesn't function the way that it was designed to. I cannot love my wife how I ought to if I don't first love God the way that I ought to. You cannot love your husband or your kids or your church family the way that you're called to do in Scripture if you don't first love God. Because love in that instance turns into something else altogether. It's not really love at that point. Often whatever we or someone else wants it to be, something so far from what God designed love to be is what it turns into. Right? And this is the kind of love that our world embraces. So everyone loves, loves other people in the way that they think is best. Most of the time in the way that they want love to be shown to them. And so we're saturated with the message that, that love, uh, accepts no matter what. True love accepts no matter what. We're told that true love never corrects, no matter how biblically, true love never corrects in a way that would infringe on the right of another person. This is the kind of love that the world says is true. In our society today, acceptance is paramount and tolerance is the new truth. Those are what is valued. Acceptance and tolerance is valued above absolute truth. And brothers and sisters, if we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves people of the book, the book is what has to drive what true love is in our lives. Every time. It has to. If you love someone, you'll let them do whatever makes them happy. That's what the world says. Whatever makes them happy, that's good. That's fine. Don't don't bother them with your view of real love. But this kind of love doesn't have the Bible as its origin. This kind of love does not have God as its author. And with all the confusion on how to really love someone, is it any wonder why we see so much conflict and heartbreak and violence in the world? When everyone has a different definition of what love is and how to really love someone, it's no wonder of that. But here's the beauty of this, guys. The author of love stepped down into our horrible situation. He came here to give us new life, to transform us from children of wrath back into the image of God, to children of God. We have a Savior who showed his love for us by laying down his life for his friends. Because right? that's what real love is, is said there. But this doesn't mean, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that Jesus loved us, his friends, more than he loved his Father. It means that Jesus loved us best because he loved his Father most. That's how we received and continue to receive real love. It's because of the love that Jesus has for the Father. So if we love God most, we will love others best. Think about this as, as we close. Um, 
And this is hard. Boy, this is hard for me. I hesitated to even say this because of the conviction it brought in my heart. But think about this. How we love others, particularly other Christians, reveals how we love God. How we love others reveals how we love God. How we love each other is an indicator of the place that God is holding in our hearts. That's that's convicting because it reveals where my heart is often. And, and you may, you know, kind of balk at this and, and say, well, you know, you don't understand what that person did to me, or I just, I can't forgive them for these reasons. And, and truth be told, you may be right. I may not understand the reasons why you feel that way. Um, I don't understand the hurt that sometimes comes with living life and hurt that has come with people sinning against us. Uh, but John puts it this way in 1 John 4.20. He says, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. I don't know that I need to explain that a whole lot. That's a pretty straightforward thing that we're told. If you can't love the person that's right in front of you, how can you say you love God? If we're able to be capable of obeying Jesus' commands in this way, then we have to be able to forgive like he forgives. We have to love like Jesus loves. And we're only going to love others if we love God the most. And while we may... While we will struggle for the rest of our lives with doing this well, we can have hope in the fact that our Father hasn't left us here to figure it out all on our own. He hasn't. He's given us His Spirit. So, if that's true, and I believe that it is, and I believe you believe that it is, if He's given us His Spirit in conflict, I want us to remember this. The same Spirit that lives in me, lives in you. The same Spirit that lives in you lives in the person that you're in conflict with. This is an assumption that we're claiming to be believers. If we are, the same Spirit resides in both of us. Shouldn't that affect how we talk to one another? How we react to one another? How we love one another. I mean, if we're trusting that this spirit is going to grow us and make a difference in our lives, shouldn't we expect and hope that the spirit is making the same difference in our brothers and sisters' lives? I think we should. I think we, we would be well to do that. You know, one day we will know the delight of loving God with our entire being as well as the joy of truly loving other people as we love ourselves. It made me think of the fourth verse, and we're going to sing this in just a moment. The fourth verse of the song, Come Thou Fount. And it says this, these lyrics. It says, On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. 
one day when sin no longer rules, we'll know the joy of how to love like this. We'll know the complete joy of how we are loved like this. When sin is no more, we're going to have the joy of loving God and our neighbors the same way that Jesus does. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Guys, these two laws hang all the rest of the laws because these Jesus condensed down to the most important. We won't do everything excellently as a church. But if we love God this way, if we even attempt to love God this way altogether, we'll love our brothers and sisters the way that we should. And God will use our body to shine the light in the darkness. And I know that's what you want. That's what we want as a church. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And as we do, I'd invite you, if, if you feel like coming up and praying with someone or praying at the altar or grabbing me and talking with me, um, feel free to do that as we sing this final song together. But let's pray. Lord, God, this I've been so excited to share this, but at the same time, so hesitant because I know everything that I just said applies to me. Because I don't love as I ought. I don't not just love my brothers and sisters, but I don't love you as I ought to, Lord, because the selfishness, the pride rises up in my heart. And Lord, I'm tempted to despair as Paul. Who who could save me from this? But I know, Lord, Jesus already has. He's come and he's paid the debt that I owed. Lord, and for everyone else who believes, he has paid the debt that we owe so that we could be reunited with our Father. And so, God, if that is true of us already, Lord, if we have been united in, in Christ to the Father, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would rule in us and reign in us and that we would love one another as you have loved us, as we love ourselves. Lord, that is on our own, in our own strength, an impossible command. And we will despair every time we try to fulfill it in our own strength. So Lord, remind us of the necessity of bowing before the cross, of giving our our control over to you every day, every, every moment of the day, Lord. So that when we choose, when we hope to love others, Lord, we want to love them well. But Lord, remind us that we have to love you most first. So draw us near to your throne. Lord, draw us near to you. Comfort us where we need it, Lord. Discipline us where we need it. God, so that we are this, this, this piercing light in the darkness of this world. Reminding them of the hope that's found in your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.